0: Well, all right. It's good to see all of you. We're in the 13th chapter of Acts. Um, One of the challenges always when uh, we meet only once a week, uh, seven days (laughs) always transpire before we get back to the text, and it's always a little difficult to kind of jump in the middle of something, but we are doing that. We're in the middle, and I would like to just look real quickly uh, starting at verse 26. We we are a little beyond that, but... um, I want to just go back to that uh, just to remind you where we are. If you are following on the map, I I know some of you don't, and that's fine. But if you are, uh this is the first missionary journey of Paul. We're in Antioch. He is in Antioch in Pisidia or sometimes called Pisidian Antioch. But that's just to give you the geography and he um as he his pattern always was uh, when he goes into a city, the very first place he goes is to a synagogue, which he did. And here, they had invited him, after they read from the uh, scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, it says, do you have a word of encouragement for us? Well, that's like asking Paul to you know, lay it all out, and he did. And he gives a masterful, this is the first recorded full-length sermon of Paul, um, a masterful review of the history of Israel. And where he is in verse 26, and again, I'm not going to review all of the the material before that, but he is a very quick, very, very quick review of Israel's history. And why did he do that? To show the faithfulness of God in keeping his covenant promise to them. Then in verse 26, he zeroes in on Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And as he establishes, Those those who executed Jesus or called for his execution, they rejected the message of this salvation. They because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Verse 27. Now, again, we covered that last week, but just look at that again, despite everything the prophets had said. Despite every single prophecy, which every day is read in the Sabbath, so every week they would hear these texts read, they still rejected him. And though they found him not worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, again, notice that language, when they had carried out all that was written of him, meaning even as they are acting, they are fulfilling prophecy. Which again, that's the whole point Paul is trying to make, that key word fulfilled, that Jesus fulfilled. And even the members of the Sanhedrin and all those that were complicit in the execution of Jesus, they are in effect part of what is occurring as the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ. They took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And I want to emphasize that again. That word witnesses is an important word in the New Testament. It's used quite a bit in the, old, uh, in the uh, Gospel accounts, and it's used in the book of Acts and several times in the Apostle Paul's writings. Actually, I think in Hebrews too. Why?
1: Because it's it's eye I, eye I, people were actually there and they're telling the story directly as they saw it.
0: Okay, this is an historical event. This isn't made up. This isn't a myth. This isn't a legend. This is an historical event with witnesses. And uh, man, I know you you probably said, to them, well, sure it is, but you don't ha- you don't understand how important this is, because in the first century, in the first century to be someone teaching a resurrection was a silly thing, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They they didn't believe in that idea idea of a bodily, physical, literal resurrection. And Paul says there are witnesses to this. As I think we talked last week. In the Bible, and there probably were more than this, but in the Bible there are ten recorded uh, places where Jesus appeared after he was uh, resurrected. And if you count up all of the people that he saw, the estimate is it was nearly 10,000 people. So it's just, what it's saying is this is not a myth. This isn't a legend. This is an historical event with witnesses. And again, that's the reason. And Paul does that here, and it it is throughout the Old, uh, the New Testament, the Gospels particularly. We're witness to this event. And he says, now we bring, verse 32, you the good news. That what God promised to His to the fathers, what fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this has fulfilled to us the children by raising Jesus, as was written in the Second Psalm. I going to get into that in a minute. But again, what this is so important for these Jewish people in Pisidian Antioch to hear that what God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is fulfilled in Jesus. And it's that covenant, those covenant promises. And we, their children, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have seen it fulfilled in our lifetime. Now, Paul does one more thing, and he's going to cite three Old Testament texts starting in this verse, where I just left off verse 33. But just let me stop for a minute. Uh, We're kind of about where I wanted to start today. But is, is everybody with, not so much me, but what Paul is doing in this sermon? Because you, you must remember, he is preaching this to Jews. And for them to hear that Messiah has come and that he's been raised from the dead and we are the witnesses of this truth was an extraordinary claim for them. So he does want... Yeah, Woody. Yeah,
1: I was just going to say,
0: uh, uh, we
1: talked about it before, but he simply didn't come like they thought he was going to come. He, was, he wasn't recognized as Jesus.
0: By many, that's right. And, mm-hmm.
1: uh, in fairness to those that, that
0: uh, didn't believe, uh, it
1: just wasn't what they expected.
0: But that does not uh, excuse them for their rejection of Jesus because of what Paul is saying here. I'm trying to show you, that these Old Testament prophecies, not only that he's going to be a king who will set up his own kingdom, but the prophecies that say he's going to die for his people, he's going to be a substitute for their, a substitution atonement for their sin, he's going to uh, redeem all of those, pro- that's what they had set aside and ignored. And that's why what he's doing here is he's going to quote the Old Testament text that direct them to that mission of Messiah. He will reign in rule, but he first has to die. And Woody, I mean, that's that's what he's trying to do. You guys missed your... The Sanhedrin missed this. They should have seen it. It's crystal clear. And uh, that gets into a whole other set of, of issues that uh have been written quite a bit about. Why, why didn't they focus on those texts? And that's not something I want to deal with at this point. What are the three texts? And I don't... Most of your translations, I think, have... They indent this so that you see they're quoting from the Old Testament. So verse thirty-three, as it also is written in the second Psalm, and so he quotes from Psalm two seven. You are my son today; I have begotten you. Now this is that's, the second Psalm is really an important Psalm in the uh, in the collection of of the Psalms, or one hundred and fifty of them. But it is first written by King David on the day he's coronated as king. And what we see in that text and how it is applied in the New Testament, Peter quotes from it extensively in his Pentecost sermon, this not only applies to King David on his coronation, it applies to Messiah on his coronation. And his coronation is associated with his resurrection. So the Father says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 1. So I'm sure they did this in your text, your quotation, they capitalized son, because who is that? It's Jesus. And the word begotten, um, and that's hard, because when you read the word begotten, as because who uses that word in the sentence anymore, but begotten for us means a time when a person's born, or they're begotten of their father, uh, Joseph, or whatever. That word begotten doesn't have anything to do with origins of birth. It has everything to do with authority and position. So you are my son. Today I have elevated you. You are my son. Today I have exalted you. You are my son. Today I affirm that you are the Messiah. I'm just paraphrasing all that's really involved in that. So there's this extraordinary promise by the Father And as for the fact that he raised from the dead, verse 34, no more to return to corruption. He's spoken in this way. Now he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. What's one of the titles of Jesus? How's he introduced in Matthew 1, 1? As son of David. And that means that all of the Davidic, promises, all of the covenantal promises God made to David, an eternal throne, an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom, are given to Jesus. He's coronated as the son, as the king. He gets all the blessings. And in one more verse, Psalm 1610, therefore also he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Psalm 16 deals with burial but it says, you will not see. let your Holy One see corruption. What's corruption? What's another word for corruption? Decay. Decay. You're not going to let your Holy One go into the grave and the worm's eating. <laughs> now, a, I don't mean that's so horrible to put it that way, but that's what it means. Because David, verse 36, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and all corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So that promise in Psalm 16:10 does not apply to David, because David's still in his grave. It applies to the Messiah. So what David, what Paul has done here is he cites three messianic texts. Now, the man, I'm telling you this very seriously. These Jewish leaders, even in Pisidian Antioch, would know these texts. These are key messianic texts. These are the texts that the rabbis would teach, applied to the coming Messiah. An Orthodox Jew today still says these texts apply to the coming Messiah. Albeit, he hasn't come yet, from from their vantage point. And so Paul's just trying to, he's used all the covenantal promises in his sermon, Jesus fulfilled those. Here are key messianic texts, Jesus fulfilled those. Now it's up to you. What are you going to do with Jesus? I mean, that's, and the, this is where he's at. He's at the main takeaway now, in verse uh, 36. Because it's a uh, It's a strategically important task that he's accomplishing, trying to show that you should not have missed that he's the Messiah. With crystal clear clarity, these prophecies are laid out, and with equal crystal clear clarity, he fulfilled these. So what's the conclusion? What am I going to do with Jesus? All right, now, um, are you with me? great thought paper would be 500 words or
1: less.
0: (laughs) Using five examples show how Paul strategically uses the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is Messiah. Wouldn't that be a great, oh, man, I would love to read those. You would detest writing it, but they would be fun to read. Are you with me? Yeah,
2: up until that point we
0: will. Oh, yeah, well... You never listen to what I say in that area anyway. So. I, I have a question for you. You
2: know, here uh, in the Pentateuch, how many uh, prophecies regarding Christ uh, are made? Because the, the Jewish people tend to focus, even today, right, on the Pentateuch, the five first five books of the Bible,
0: and yet... Uh, Collectively, how many are there, Jim? Just well, it isn't. uh, I'm not sure I would agree with you that they only focus because they do focus a great deal on the prophets, major prophets and minor prophets. And if you include all the Old Testament, there are 376 prophecies of Jesus' first advent about the Messiah's first advent
2: that they study.
0: Yeah, that are in the in well, whether they study them all or not, I don't know. But they're there, and even Jewish rabbis. that believe messiah hasn't come yet uh, they will say that the prophecies are there of what's going do you might even remember do you remember when uh, it's in the christmas story when the magi show up in jerusalem and they come into herod's court and they say we're here to worship he who is born king of the jews which really unsettles herod and when they leave, do you know what herod does he calls his advisors and says where does the old testament say the messiah is going to be born and what do they do they quote from micah 5:2 He'll be born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem's five miles from Jerusalem. What is amazing is that nobody went down to check out the story. Here's the prophecy, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. These guys are coming from the east to worship him born king of the Jews. And they don't make that five mile trip just to check out and see, is there somebody down there in Bethlehem a few miles outside of our city? And it's just, it's an amazing prophecy that is the right prophecy, but they don't connect the dots. It's just it's it's an amazing evidence of the of the unwillingness to believe that this baby five miles south that everybody is coming to worship is the Messiah. This one. Just a
2: little maybe on this subject, but what is the belief of the Orthodox Jew after death? Uh, I I heard a comment after this incident of the synagogue
0: shooting. That one son of that couple said, well, they are back together again Well, Larry, if you're asking, uh, does an Orthodox Jew believe in a resurrection and an afterlife? Is that another way of asking the question? The answer is yes. There is. They do. They do believe that, absolutely. The resurrection is taught in the Old Testament. I mean, not as directly as in, in 1 Corinthians 15, for example. Uh, where Paul has a long discourse on it, but it is taught there, and they uh, they adhere to a strong belief in the in the afterlife and in a resurrection, and they do believe. Um, well, I, I maybe I shouldn't go any further than that. So yes, they do, they do. All right, may I go on? Now the application of this starts in verse thirty-eight. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, who's the man? Jesus. Jesus. Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Verse 39, and by him. Now, I really want you to pay attention to this verse. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I wish I had... There isn't a board here. I wish I had a board here. Um, Do all of your translations translate that everyone who believes is freed? Do they all translate that freed?
1: Freed. Is that what
0: NIV have freed? NIV
1: has justified.
0: Ah, they do. Really? That's amazing. I can hardly believe that. Because the NIV is never that good. (laughs) The word that's translated, I'm reading for the ESV, the word that's translated freed, now, this is why if I had a board, I'd write it up there. And it isn't that important, but the Greek word is dikaiao. And I know that you you say, okay, good, so what? But that word is normally translated justified. That's why I'm really, you know, the NIV usually is trying to find a dynamic equivalent, but they've, they've nailed it here. That should be justified. And what we're seeing here is the Apostle Paul is beginning to develop the language that he will use, because this is early, he will use in his writings in Galatians, which he'll write in just a few months, the book of Galatians, and Romans, and so on. So let's go. We've talked about this before, but I hope you remember justified means, it's a legal term, it's a forensic term, to be declared righteous. So, if we would paraphrase this, everyone who believes is declared righteous from everything from which he could not be declared righteous by the law of Moses. So, what is Paul doing? He's comparing and contrasting your view of salvation, you Jews, at this point. You are so legalistically bound to the law that you're saying, that is how I achieve salvation. And Paul is saying, First of all, you don't understand the dynamic of salvation, but it is through Jesus Christ and his completed work that you are justified, not by the law. And so this is, now you you just have to imagine what this is like for a Jewish person in about A.D. 48, 47 or 48, whenever Paul uttered these words. Here's this. And you know they're in the synagogue every Sabbath, and they're hearing the word of God read. They're hearing it instruct- They're hearing it taught. Get instruction from the rabbis and so on. And here comes this guy saying that the law doesn't make you righteous; Jesus does. He just canceled their ticket. It, well, and it, he's he's just saying you got it all wrong. Now, see, now part of that comes, and that's part of why the Book of Romans is so important. Part of that comes from their misunderstanding of what the law was to do. Because by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, the whole view of the law, largely through Phariseeism, had deteriorated to a legalism. If I do this, 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 and this, God will accept me. If I don't do this, 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 God will not accept me. That's not the basis of God's acceptance. It's always faith. That's what Paul says in Romans 4, chapter 4, for example. How was Abraham justified? By faith. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it would be shocking for them to hear somebody say that, but the logic of everything he's been talking about up to this point leads to that. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was a miraculous life-changing historic threshold that was crossed and all that to accomplish one thing give you an opportunity to be justified saved declared righteous made new or whatever you want to say
2: you know when i read that it looks like well there were just a few holes in the law of moses there are a few things that you know this is going to cover but the real context is you
0: couldn't be justified at all in any way by the law. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that is consistently established in the Old Testament. Uh, But You're you're absolutely right. It's a misunderstanding of what the law was supposed to do. The law was to enable the Jewish person to walk with God. This is how you walk with God, not how you were justified. And again, that's if you go back to, like Romans 4, Paul says, and he uses Abraham as an example, and he quotes four times from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. How was, how was Abraham 4,000 years ago justified? By faith. He believed what God was telling him. He believed what God had said. In you all the nations, everything God had promised. And then Paul just consistently uses that then to to, to show, if Abraham is justified by faith, and he's the father of all who believe, the pattern that he followed is consistently followed throughout God's uh, God's revelation in dealing with man, and with human beings. And so Paul is Paul is reaching a conclusion: it is not the law that justifies you. It has never been the law that's justified you. It is by this man. Through him, you see forgiveness and justification. If you summarize those two verses. So he's asking them, uh, that's maybe even almost too too soft of a term, he's insisting now, and in applying all that he's been saying, he's insisting upon them seriously understanding who Jesus is and what he accomplished and what he's offering. And then he quotes, it seems almost obscure at first, but he quotes at the very end in verse forty-one from Habakkuk one five, beware lest what he said of the prophet should come about. Look at look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. It's been told to you. It's been explained to you. Now respond. <laughs> I am doing a mighty work. It's done. Now, what are you going to do with it? I mean, this is is really the message of the gospel. Here's Jesus. Here's what he's done. Here's what he accomplished for you. What are you going to do with it? The question remains throughout history and in our day in 2018. um, Okay, here's the gospel message. Now, what are you going to do with it? God laid it on the table. He's accomplished everything. What are you you going to do with it? Uh, I know you've heard this before. I think i even quoted. But in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, you must make a decision about Christ because you only have three options. He's crazy. He's a lunatic. He's a liar. Or he is who he says he is. I mean, you can't sit on the fence with Jesus. And that's what Paul is really doing here is he's laid out all this evidence and all of this material from the Old Testament and says, listen, consistent with everything these prophecies state, forgiveness and justification comes through the Messiah. And who is the Messiah? Jesus. What are you going to do with that? Jim, can you distinguish
2: between uh, morality and spirituality in the context that we've been
0: talking about? it?" All right, uh, morality and spirituality. Well, morality generally is understood, or moral, uh, to be generally understood as behavior. It's what you do. Spirituality is the um, Holy Spirit-energized um, life that you live as a part of your relationship with, with God through Christ. So, I mean, I'm not, you're, you're using two pretty broad terms. I'm not quite sure if I'm even answering your question. But um, if, if I can, I'll, I'll take your question and put it another way. Christianity is not about morality. It, it isn't that God isn't interested in that. But Christianity is not about morality. What Christianity is about is God wants a relationship with you because he created you and he loves you, but because you're a sinner, he has to deal with that problem. And if he doesn't deal with that problem, you'll never have a relationship with him. That problem is dealt with by God, who is the sovereign king of the universe who loves you by sending his son to die for you, which is what Paul says. Just... And so he's taken care of all that. That relationship is possible now, but you have to pick up the gift. And then not only will you have a, vi- vi- a vitality in your spiritual relationship with God, you will also have the power to live a life that's pleasing to him. Morality is only possible with the spirituality that comes through Christ. So I don't know if that's where you're headed with your question. But.
1: Good.
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you. Your second thought paper, in a thousand words or less, is to, to summarize, the, uh, summarize the message of Paul for the Jewish people. It's not hard. Message part number one, you review their history based on the covenantal relationship God established with Abraham. Number two, focus on Jesus. He fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. Number three, here's the proof. Now, what are you going to do with that? You would need a thousand words. But it's open book and can quote from the Old Testament. I encourage you to do that, and you'll know what to do. All right.
1: Or he just uh, read a book called Prophecy for Dummies.
0: Yeah, There you go. That would be even better. <laughs> now, what happens? He's in Antioch of Pisidia, Pisidian, in Antioch. This is the first recorded sermon of Paul's. And as they went out, they would be Paul and Barnabas. As they're leaving the synagogue there, the people begged That these things might be told them next Sabbath. Paul, come back next week. We want to hear more. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism. Again, if I had a board, I'd write this. The word converts in Greek is proselytos, proselyte. Did you ever hear that word, proselyte? It's a convert to Judaism. Gentile person, Greco-Roman person, because that's where we are at this point, they converted to Judaism. So you have the, the Jews in the synagogue and these converts followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now, don't mess up the pronouns there. As they spoke with them, who's the they? Paul and Barnabas spoke with them, urged them, who's the them? The Jewish people and the converts to continue in the grace of God. So Paul and Barnabas are saying, you've accepted the message by grace through faith. Now persevere and continue in that grace. So it's a word of encouragement to these people in Antioch of Pisidia who have responded to the message. Do you find it interesting that Luke says they... Encourage them to continue in the grace of God.
1: They already
0: had the grace explained to them mm-hmm. through Paul's sermon. That's right. And they said, "If you're really interested in this, then just do what what I told you. To okay, understand what I told you. Understand and respond to what I told you. Um, how how does the Bible? With. There's any day I wish I had a board. It's a third time. But um, grace, how's it used and developed throughout the scriptures? There's common grace where God gives his blessings on both the righteous and the unrighteous. What would be an example of that? The gorgeous cold weather we're having today, that's common grace. Some of you might look at it as evidence of the curse on creation to sin. But, but it is common grace, the rain that God sends, the, the sunshine that God sends, which nourishes the earth and allows it to be productive, to produce food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That God doesn't set, when it rains, it just doesn't raise in my little piece of land, 774, other than a cul de sac. It, it rains all over the place. My Buddhist neighbor, my atheist neighbor, my my Eastern Orthodox neighbor. I mean, because God does not discriminate. But saving grace is what Paul has just declared to them. Then there's sustaining grace. And every day, we're dependent on the grace of God. He owes us nothing. He offers us everything. I think I've told you this story, but let me tell you it again, because that drove home to me what that meant. Many, many years ago... um, when I was ordained and on staff at a church back in Pennsylvania, my home church. But anyway, it came time for me to say communion, to lead communion. It was the first time I'd ever done that. I was a young guy and all that. Now, you have to understand something back, when the earth's crust was still hardening that long ago. <laughs> in communion, they used real glasses when I was a young adult. And I mean, uh, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Today, it's the plastic ones and so on. But, huh? Yeah, I mean, and, and when you, then you have these containers that were pretty big and, and, and pretty wide, um, you fill them with the, the juice and all that stuff. They're heavy. And so I, this is what I'm thinking about. I'm standing, because the the way the church was, the, the the large church, one part of the staff would go in this way, one part of the staff would meet then in the center and sit for the service. So I was here on, if you're facing the, the front, I would be on this side, the left side or right side, depending on your position. And I, I must have been visibly, <laughs> visibly shaking. I mean, I was because I was thinking, oh, what am I going to do if I drop? These things are so heavy. I'm just thinking of all the possible scenarios that could go wrong. So instead of focusing on the Lord and praying that this is, I'm thinking about all these things that could happen. And a worship leader came up to me, put his arm around me, his name was Jerry, and he said, um, Jim, are you a little anxious about this? I said, Jerry, I'm shaking in my boots, and I just said, "What if I?" And he, all he, he just stopped. He put his hand on my mouth and said, "Well, I suppose God's grace is sufficient for that too." <laughs> and I just, you know, I thought that's it. You know, that was such a great statement for me because it, to, God's sufficiency. As another example of his grace, he owes Jim Ekman nothing, but he offers him everything. And I just used my name because that story's about me. You could put any one of your names in there. That, That God sustains us by his grace. And that's what they're saying to these guys. Continue in the grace of God. You accepted and embraced the grace of God by faith in Christ. Now continue in that. C.S. Lewis says, You come to Christ and you learn dependence on Him, you become a joyous beggar. That's, That's what it means to live by the grace of God, a joyous beggar. You know your need for daily dependence, and you're happy about that because you know what happens when you try to be in control. So it's a powerful way to think about His, and Luke captures it in one phrase. Continue in the grace of God. Now the next Sabbath, this is this is is important. The next I'd be a week later, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now the City in Antioch isn't like you know Rome or Athens. Wasn't that big of a but so you're talking about hundreds, definitely, perhaps a few thousand. But when the Jews saw the crowds, now Luke does what John does. When he says, that, that this is an anti-Semitic statement. He's mainly talking about the leadership. Mm-hmm. Saw so the crowd. They were filled with jealousy. Why would the Jewish leaders in the synagogue be jealous? They wanted to maintain their own power yeah. and control. Yeah. Of people. And if everybody accepts the message that Jesus is the Messiah, and that everything's changed, <laughs> they're going to be out of a job. They're going to be out of a position. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying by reviling him. What's another word for reviling? Slandering. Slandering, mocking. It's a very strong word. But I love But Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Who's the you? To the Jewish people. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, you leaders, we're turning to the Gentiles. And that's something that'll happen a couple of times. And then he quotes, this is quite extraordinary here. For the Lord had commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah 49.6. It's one of the servant songs of Isaiah. From chapter 40 through chapter 40, 66 of Isaiah, there are five servant songs. That's what they're called. And they all apply to the coming Messiah. And Matthew quotes this same verse when Jesus starts his ministry up in Galilee. He quotes this verse. So what's Paul saying? The, the task and ministry of Jesus continues through us. We're now his representatives, taking salvation to the ends of the earth. So, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary, and this you can't miss this, it's an extraordinary connection that Paul's making to what Messiah was assigned to do, we are continuing in his name, as Jesus said they would do. Jim,
2: uh, people today say, well, you know, I, I, I have this in my heart. I know I'm a born-again believer. I trust in Christ every day of my life. Uh, but to ask me to go out, I, I don't know if I can do that and share Christ with anyone. Can, can you address that that um, fear it's common among many Christians, perhaps. Well, it,
0: I mean, it is. I mean, to, we are to called to be witnesses of what God has done to us through Christ. Um, I think, you know, I think, Fred, it, the important thing about that, as, as the Lord has instructed us, and it's throughout the scriptures we're reminded of that, is to be ready and available to give an account of the hope that is in you. That's Peter's word. In in first Peter, Um, it can be understood and applied in a person's life as aggressively going to your next door neighbor, banging on the door with your Bible in hand and saying, or it could be simply, Lord, I'm available. Um, I would like to talk to my neighbor about Christ because I know he or she does not know the Lord or whatever the scenario might be. Um, Lord, give me the right opportunity to do that. I mean, it's people. it depends on your temperament, and your personality, how you want to do it. But there's that willingness, and I. this is not an original thought with me, but I, I love it, so I'm going to borrow it. It's that willingness to be available to the Lord in, in, in terms of just being the witness of what God has done. Being available it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to become a missionary. Not everybody's calling that way or you're going to be very aggressive. Uh, Some people are comfortable with doing that, but you want to be a good witness, both in how you live and in what you say. There again, I think that's a dependence on the grace of God of how you're going to go about doing that. So that fear has to be overcome by the faith and trust in the Lord that we have, and by a a recognition that that is just something that he wants me to be available. Aaron Maness, in one of his books, talks about the divine appointments of God in our lives, And I think uh, that's a good way for just to uh, us to think about that. Always be available for divine appointments. And we can rest
2: in him, mm-hmm. knowing he is faithful mm-hmm. to lead us to those mm-hmm. situations and to give us the words. That's right. Give us the acts right. or whatever we need to do. That's exactly and, right. And it's not really dependent on us. It's dependent upon how he leads us. Is, is
0: that- That's exactly right. And I mean, it's, it's just that's why I I just love that. And again, it's not original with me. I love that word available. Lord, I'm available. You you have you have someone in some situation that you would like me to share with them, to come alongside, to give them the message of the gospel. Or I'm willing to do that. Um, it could be on an elevator. It could be at a Starbucks coffee when a young barista is messing up just absolutely that's what happened to me three days ago she's young she has no idea what she's doing and the trainer was in the other room and she was so flustered she made four mistakes and she still didn't get it right so you know what do you say to some young person like that you idiot what are you doing working here go find another job or <laughs> just kidding we're going to skip verse forty-eight because it's too theologically difficult. <clears throat> Here's the fourth opportunity where I sure wish I had a board. And when the Gentiles heard this, what, what Paul had just said, as he quoted from Isaiah forty-nine six, they began rejoicing, and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, assuming you're awake and assuming you're thinking, there's one verb in that verse that's disturbing to you. Appointed. appointed. Mm-hmm. Believed isn't difficult. That's all over the place. 92 times in the Gospel of John. On and on and on. But as we're appointed... To eternal life, believed. Ordained. Ordained, Ordained. okay. It's passive voice. And I know you remember what that means for English grammar class. Passive voice were appointed. Who appointed them? Who ordained them? God did. God is the subject of this passive voice verb. So those whom God ordained and appointed believed. So now listen, in this verse, do you remember the analogy I use of railroad tracks? Mm-hmm. Remember that? I would, if I had a board, just okay, pretend this is a board, I'm drawing it. Mm-hmm. It's, okay, two vertical lines, three horizontal lines. It's a railroad track, Union Pacific. Perfect. Well built. The railroad tracks are the right-hand side track is divine sovereignty. The left-hand track is human responsibility, and that's what you see in this verse. As Luke summarizes this, he emphasizes both God's sovereignty, but also the human responsibility to believe. Now, the tension we feel is Not both and, which is what the scriptures teach, but appointed. That flies in the face of that unbiblical concept that's never mentioned in the Bible, but we all call free will. And you say, well, that jeopardizes that. that, uh, that, That's an affront to my free will. So, the only way, and there is no other way to accept this, is both of these things are taught in Scripture. The sovereignty of God and the responsible freedom of the human being. They're both taught. And if you can resolve the tension of those two, write a book about it, and you will have answered the question that rabbis in the Old Testament and since Jesus... New Testament scholars have been debating and writing books about. For, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of books in print trying to resolve these two things.
1: What, what about the
0: from Jeremiah
1: that says, um, before you were, I knew you before you were formed in the womb. Mm-hmm. So that that's, implies selection.
0: Yes, God's clear, sovereign choice of... Jeremiah to be a prophet, and you're right. Mm-hmm. What are you saying? That Jeremiah didn't. He no, was a robot, he was oh, going to have to be whether he wanted to be or not. I'm just I'm I'm saying, I'm kidding. I'm
1: saying that the, the, the dependence of, of Esau would not fit this criteria. They potentially could have if they. If they believe, but in general they probably wouldn't. And and, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, pointing out the the, 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 in the Abrahamic uh, the covenant lineage. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are the, the pointed. Those are the selected people. Yeah. Then he points out that the Jews were also selected. So and I think even even in the Old Testament the Jews are are noted as, as being uh, favored by God. So that's right.
0: The the chosen of God. The elect of God. That's right. Now, again, I, I, that's why I was hoping to skip this verse or that the Lord would come and I wouldn't have to deal with it. But this is you see this crop up again and again in the Scriptures. This verse is affirming the sovereignty of God through the word appointed or ordained, however you, your translation has it. But it's also affirming the responsibility of the human being to believe. So you... <laughs> You have both of these things taught in this verse. And they're both true in this verse. And they're both true in life. And I cannot put... That's why I like the railroad tracks. Because as you're walking on the railroad tracks, you know, just pretend that you're doing that, they always... They'll always be parallel. Or if they're not parallel, the train will never be able to run. But they're always parallel up on the horizon if you... It's flat it and you see the horizon with the train tracks. You see, they seem to be coming together, but as long as you're walking, they're parallel. Both tracks are needed for the train to run. Both tracks are a part of what God is doing. We are not robots or automatons or marionettes or any of those other things that you could say. Um, and yet God superintends every action to accomplish his purposes, which are foreordained. I can't put that together. The tension is always there. I, I, if you've heard me talk about this before, another example I use is in the upper room, a few hours before Jesus is going to be arrested, they're enjoying the Passover meal. Remember what he says? Tonight, one of you is going to betray me. According to the scriptures, which side of the railroad track is that? sovereignty, semicolon, but woe to that man, it would have been better if he were never born. Which side of the track is that? The left-hand side. Judas chose will, willingly and uh, with accountability to betray Jesus. You and I don't applaud Jesus when we get to him. Thanks, Jesus. Thank you, Judas, for what you did. You helped contribute to my redemption. What he did was a dastardly evil thing. He betrayed Jesus. And he's accountable for it. You know, you know what happened. He committed suicide and all that stuff that the text tells us. But what what Jesus is saying there, he's, he's saying both of these things in this one prophetic event. A few hours from now, one of you is going to betray me. But that one of you that betrays me is accountable for that betrayal. Woe to that man. Woe is the word of judgment. So I just... You, that's all I'm going to say about that, unless you have a really, really, really important question, Bob. Rob. <laughs> yes. Didn't you have your hand up? Well, Joel did.
2: I, 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 I'm thinking of people thinking that this is at the front of their freedom. And I think we've come across this before. I certainly have had some discussions with others of, about the difference between freedom and license. And where we get
0: the word licentious. That's right. That's right. Well, yes. Uh, freedom does not mean license. That's that's absolutely correct. Yeah. Joel, did you have your
2: Well, I guess the you know, one potential challenge or troubling thought is if it says that to all who were appointed for eternal life believe, does it stand that there were some that were not appointed?
0: Well, I was hoping nobody would want to go down that bunny trail. But the answer to that, Joel, has to be yes. And this is, uh, you know, a number of years ago in this class, we studied Romans, and I'm not sure you all remember that, but... When you're at chapter 9 and chapter 10 of the book of Romans, Paul deals with both of these issues in those two chapters. Chapter 9 is the focus on God's sovereignty, chapter 10 is the focus on human responsibility. And in chapter 9, he says, God chose Jacob, but not Esau. And, and he says, Who are you to challenge what God has chosen? What it does the piece of clay say to the potter? Why did you make me this? I mean, these are some of the things Paul talks about in affirming the sovereignty of God, and the theme of Romans is in salvation, but the sovereignty of God in anything. But it's it's it does not negate, and that's why this chapter ten is does not negate the responsible actions of the human being. And this is Joel. I'm telling you. I mean. It, for thousands of years, people have argued about this. Philosophers, because philosophers, even those who who um, deny the specific teachings of Scripture, still have to deal with these kinds of things. Why do people do what they do? How free are we as human beings? Because there's was one of the challenges of Darwin's whole hypothesis. If this is true, how free are we really? It seems that we are the products of an impersonal force that's very powerful. So how free are we? The force of natural selection is what Darwin called it. It's so powerful, are we really free? How deterministic is it? I mean, these are the kinds of questions philosophers to deal with. And so the answer to your question is, God has sovereignly chosen. Why has he sovereignly chosen? Because he loves, I mean, they, these are the, you start you study it, and you cannot get a satisfactory resolution to the tension that the Bible presents between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, or what I like to call responsible freedom of the human being. You cannot resolve that, this side of heaven.
2: Jim, when, when God created the heaven and earth, uh, he spoke it into existence. And at the time he spoke it, he knew what the end result would be because he is not limited in his knowledge whatsoever. So in the context of creating man, he would be able to see to the end of man until the time of the second coming of Christ and would know all of those people in the world that had ever been born and ever lived and know what their end result would be, whether it would be in heaven or in hell because he's not limited in his knowledge. And yet he says, I'm not willing that any should perish. And so that visitation of the Holy Spirit and God's and that was there at the time will never leave until such time as it's taken before tribulation. And so at We couldn't limit God in in any way, and yet we're not in chains being driven to hell or given wings, not angelic maybe so much, but personal to to ascend to heaven. And his knowledge is just there, and his love is there, and we couldn't limit it by knowing that these men would sit in this class here. He knew that, and it would, you know, they would receive Christ perhaps as Savior.
0: So I guess I guess that was more a summary of everything than a question. But you're you're right. I mean, yeah. Let me ask this one question rhetorically, and then we'll we'll bring it to an end. Uh, that's why I wanted to skip this verse. Mm-hmm. It's getting too heavy. You're leaving, in the, okay? <laughs> sort of uh, just th- let me just pose this one question. Here you are. God had created everything, created a human race, Adam and Eve, uh, given them the the charge. You know, this 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 is yours. You have the freedom to develop it and do whatever you want with it. Only one thing: do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only moral law there is when Genesis 3 opens and the serpent shows up and begins to question Eve and deceive Eve, and then when they choose to eat of the fruit, both Adam and Eve and son sinners, did God know that was going to happen? Or did that slip up God's blind side? Now you can't. God knew that was going to happen. All right. If God knew that was going to happen, Next question, did he have the power and authority to stop that from happening? He had to say yes, but he chose not to do it for a greater purpose, which was, I knew in in the way God did things, he created free, and I'm, I'm putting it this way as a philosopher would put it, as a free moral agent. But a free moral agent is not libertine. A free moral agent means you're free in the choices you make, but in the choices you make as a free agent, you must live with the consequences of those choices. And if you choose to rebel against God, then you live with the consequences. That's what God said to them. Separation from him is one of the the things. So then, what does God do? Then God acts to bring rebellious humanity back. And He makes the promise in verse 13: When the seed of the woman will come, one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's just one little statement, it's a promise. It's not always going to be like this. And so, God begins His redemptive program. And Peter gives us the reason why it's going so long. It's been for you know, thousands of years. So God is is continuing to delay the return of his son and closing out human history so that more will come to faith. More will come, I like to put it, increasing the population of heaven. So to me, and this is how the Bible presents it, focus on that. This is what God is doing to win humanity back. Don't get hung up singularly just on this question of sovereignty versus freedom. Is you're never going to resolve that. The philosophers, Schopenhauer, a great philosopher of an earlier century, tried to resolve this. Just as a flaw. he couldn't do it, and he just threw up his hand and said, "I can't. I cannot resolve uh, the true understanding of philosophy, of what the freedom of the human race really means. I can't resolve. I can't make it work." And so, for you and me, it's accepting that this tension is always and, and thanking God. That you have made the decision to put your faith in His Son, because that's all the difference in the world. Now, look, I've got to quit. I this is, I knew this was going to happen. I was just hoping that in some way, many of you were asleep and you just didn't catch the verse. And but I want to start next week. I just to say a word or two about um, the end of the. Well, we'll start chapter 14. Just close out a couple of things. But in chapter 14, because this is the end of the missionary journey, first missionary journey. And then we have the great, great, great Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. If you're going to miss class, next week we'll, we'll go through 14. But don't miss that class on the 15th, Acts 15. If you miss that, God is going to hail brimstone at you. No, I'm just kidding. But that, I, that's a very, very important chapter. So, but we have one more chapter to finish out the journey.
1: If, if you weren't such a good teacher, you would not have posed over this question. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Well, thank you
0: for that. That's encouraging sometimes. Let me pray here. Lord, we have uh, come across again this verse uh, 48, which is such a challenge to our finite minds. How do we put appointed together with belief? Belief is the action of the human, appointed is the action of you, the sovereign God. The point is that the Bible speaks of both. So we trust your sovereignty and goodness, but we also accept our responsibility to respond to your goodness and your sovereignty. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what Paul just laid out to these Jewish people in sitting in Antioch in the synagogue. This is what you believe. These are what the prophets said. This is what Jesus did to fulfill it. Now what are you gonna do with that truth? So uh, in a sense, that message is still in front of the human race today. Here is what has happened, this historic event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is what it accomplished. What are you going to do with that? It's still all about Jesus. So, Lord, um, even though these are important theological issues, enable us, please, to rise above that. We probably will never resolve it this side of eternity. But we are thankful that we are those who have believed, and we want to tell that message to others so that they, too, can believe May we be good representatives of you in both what we say and do in the name of your dear son. Amen. Amen.